Wow. Okay. So today's episode is a little different. It's uh, here's a fight in the background, and I'm doing dishes right now. So this is real life. Um, bringing you guys into my home, but this conversation is actually kind of right along lines with that. Where this was more for uh, for informational purposes. There wasn't a, a, a deep story here as much as there was a lot of information. Um, we talked a lot about how patients can feel like a number, uh, more specifically how I felt like a number uh, going through my medical process. Um, still kind of going through it and still definitely feel like a number. So kind of getting into that. I'm also some of uh, training doctors receive. Um, my view on the basically just pill pushing, so um, it don't help out too much um, when it comes to things like this. So we we spoke about a lot of uh, misconceptions and, and things. It, it's this is a great episode to come in and to learn. So I implore you to kind of sit down, uh, listen once or twice um, with a notepad if you do have fibromyalgia or any chronic disease. Um, I highly recommend you stick around for this one. Uh, I had a lot of fun talking talking with Dr. Lenz, and uh, he has an amazing book out. So go check that out. And uh, yeah, please have fun and pay attention. And we are set to go. Yeah, just kind of go ahead and hit record. Um, all right, so today we have Dr. Michael Lentz. Um, this is a fighter story. The uh, We're going to do things a little bit differently today. It's not going to be so much, you know, like overcoming these obstacles and whatnot. I'm actually going to uh, be having a conversation with uh, Dr. Michael Lentz about fibromyalgia. Um yeah, I don't, I don't know where it's going to go from here. So I'll just kind of uh, hand the uh, the mic over to you, and I'll, you know, we should probably put some disclaimers out there because some people take things a little too serious on the internet. <laughs> and uh, yeah, well, thanks for uh, inviting me to uh, be part of the podcast. And uh, as I say on my podcast, uh, as a disclaimer, I am a doctor. Uh, I'm not your doctor. Uh, this is just a nice educational, informational session, but it shouldn't replace or be perceived as specific medical advice for a specific person and hopefully can help people learn more about this. As I try to share in my podcast, it's meant for people who have fibromyalgia. It's also meant for their loved ones who don't have it, don't understand it, but want to learn. They just don't know. And also for physicians that are just hopefully neutral about fibromyalgia, they just didn't have the training, but they would like to learn more about it. Yeah, and that's sure. kind of my target audience. And hopefully when people are listening to this, uh, that we can have that it can be very frustrating living with fibromyalgia to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. I know, especially as like, as a guy, um, and as I like to try to be as active as possible, um, just being a guy in general, you know, like it's, it's hard to even admit, you know, that I'm in pain, um, and having to go through like a constant pain and like, you know, trying to hide everything, it's there's a huge mental struggle that goes along with fibromyalgia that I feel like not a lot of people talk about as well. It's a, it's a dismissed um, kind of area of medicine. I feel like um, 
but let's kind of back up a little bit. So when you're going through medical school, did you, did you always know you wanted to be a doctor? Let's just kind of start there and kind of how you even get on this obsessive path, you know, I, and I, and I say obsessive in, in a positive way, um, you know, just in conversation that we've had over the past couple of weeks, you know, I can definitely tell um, you're, you are passionate about this, not obsessive, um, passionate enough to, to write an entire book. Um, you have a podcast. Um, so yeah, it's, it's not the traditional route you see in American medicine is, is doctors kind of picking something and being passionate about it. It's more, at least from my perspective, um, uh, prescription writers, um, you know, just, just pill pushers and paper pushers. And, you know, you're, you're a number that's just kind of hurtled through these rooms. Um, every now and then you do get a good doctor. So I'm, I'm pretty curious kind of how you got on this path, you know, yeah. and we can definitely get into it. So I've been a doctor for over 25 years in a, a month and a half. It'll be a 26 years that I've been a doctor. I wanted to be a doctor starting in med school. I was always very curious about just science. Uh, my mom was a nurse. I always had that compassionate and caring part of that. And I wanted to be challenged. I was just gifted with uh, some intelligence to learn things and pursued that. I went to uh, a pre-med program at University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee called Target MD, which it was probably one of the most exciting days I had when I got the acceptance letter because it was an early admission program that if I just maintained my grades, I would be able to get in. I went to med school, medical college of Wisconsin and wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I kind of thought about general practice as a option. Then you go through med school, you get all the different options to pick from and decided that I liked the non-surgical management of people. And I was thinking of primary care and I was thinking of family practice, but then I heard of this combined program called MedPeds is the short for that, but it's internal medicine and pediatrics. So I'm double boarded as a, both a pediatrician and an internist. It's a four-year program that combines six years into four years. So it gives me the expertise as a both a pediatrician. So I try to spend as much of my practice as I can with pediatrics, just demographically going. There's more adults in the world. So I end up seeing a little more adults. But I also am an internal medicine doctor, which is a non-operative care of adults. I kind of look at it as I'm a medical detective. I try to be a problem solver when it comes to things. And then I've always had that I like, um, always had an interest in um, diet, even and that grew over time. Uh, mm -hmm. Interestingly, I worked part time in the produce department in high school, which is kind of funny because I fell in love with fresh fruit. Then uh, before that, it was a lot of canned vegetables and fruit. But that's a side note. And then I always was in sports. I was always in athletics. I was, I love playing sports and always was very active. And I liked the coaching aspect that you get in counseling. My first year in med school, we had a problem we had to pick and we had to learn about. You could pick some esoteric, rare disease, genetic disorder. Our small group of like four people was depression. And we were uh, mentored by a psychiatrist Dr. Chan. And it was really neat because that was when in, the, in 1992, that was something that was probably where fibromyalgia is now, where people were coming out of this, hey, you should just be happy. Why can't you be happy? 
you should just put on a happy face and think positively and listen to a nice Joel Olstein positive sermon and everything's going to be good. Right. And, and um, so I really had that interest in mental health, if you want to call that in that aspect and recognition of that, then you go through your training for four years and a lot of things, I, I know I saw patients who had fibro, but I didn't know it was fibro. I knew there were chronic pain issues that were going on and fatigue, but we have so much we have to learn from diabetes, heart failure, rashes that we're just trying to take a drink from a waterfall, so to speak, of all this information. We're trying to filter that out. On my own, I started to see in my early practice that there were these common connections between what we call these central pain sensitization syndrome or regional pain syndromes, which fall under the umbrella of fibromyalgia. And most people who have fibromyalgia actually have one of these before they develop full spread fibromyalgia. They might've had, um, one of the earliest signs as I talk about in my book is actually colic, um, is on that spectrum. Uh, there's a connection and that, uh, that there's a higher, uh, prevalence of, migraines than in parents who have children who have um, colicky babies, for example, a restless leg syndrome is higher in babies even. Then you get abdominal pain going into um, adolescence, girls getting painful periods. That's part of that, much more painful than normal. Migraines, irritable bowel syndrome, and then it gets chronic neck pain, back pain, endometriosis. All of those start, and eventually if it gets worse, it can be diffuse pain, profound fatigue, that qualifies for fibromyalgia. So I started to see connections of somebody may have a migraine, but their sister had IBS and their mom had this chronic pain. And I didn't, it, these are just clues, you know, you, you're just hearing, that's just from taking a family history of people. Really? So I started to go, oh, that's really interesting. And I remember giving bad care to people when I didn't know something, you know, 15 years ago. And now I have a patient that came back as she moved back to the area. And I remember her, she has this chronic pain in her legs and I didn't know what was causing it and got all these tests done. We thought, okay, there's a blood clot. What's going on now? She comes back a few years ago and now I'm able to diagnose her. But back 15 plus years ago, I was mystery. What is going on? I always wondered what was wrong. And I never had the mentality that well, that's just a hypochondriac. I never went and I, I always excluded that as an option. I never bought into that as an option, uh, as, as a explanation. What about um, from the angle of like a drug seeker? Did you ever kind of like experience like that? Well, that's, that is a term that interestingly, that's a, could, could be several podcasts on that, um, and the interesting thing is in the early late nineties and early two thousands, which is when I went through residency in 96 to 2000 is when the whole fifth vital sign was being uh, pushed as that whenever you were taking a patient's, uh, you know, blood pressure, heart rate, respiratory rate, oxygen level, you need to ask how bad is your pain? And that's, you think more classically in the hospital and we had to treat pain. And then that wasn't when Oxycontin was coming out and being pushed is, Hey, if Tylenol and Motrin aren't working, then the next step is Vicodin or Oxycontin for long acting very early in the two thousands. When I had a patient of mine who clearly was playing games with me with, with Oxycontin, when he wouldn't sign a contract just to say, Hey, uh, you know, there were some, a couple of suspicious 
things that made me want to go, hey, you know, as a, you come out trusting people, I've quickly said Oxycontin is not the tr way to treat chronic pain. And I way before any of the evidence came out of what the drug companies were pushing, but that still left me with, well, what's the solution? Just saying, okay, opioids aren't the answer. What are the solutions and trying to help them? You know, but that probably from the drug seeker might have been from the op the opioid um, the opioid uh, use or misuse of the time. Right. Now, interestingly, I think that there's a lot of people who, unfortunately, probably did have fibromyalgia, were treated with the opioid that gave them some euphoria, but didn't actually help them in the long term. And then they developed a tolerance and needed higher and higher levels. But, but that's something we didn't know then. Mm -hmm. Now we understand that that probably actually makes fibromyalgia worse in the long term. So Dr. Claw has done a lot of good with. So I, I don't like labeling people. I was, I, I was saying, getting back to the drug seeker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I just thought, well, they, they're, they're trying to get help. And reasonable people will say, Okay, as long as you're going to spend time with me and help me, if you're just going to say, I'm not going to give you an opioid, but I'm not going to help you in other ways. And reasonable people go, hey, I just want to feel better. I want to get better. Um, and now with what we know now and the comprehensive approach, there are tools that we can use to help people. Yeah, it's the the uh, the drug seeking thing is, is a strange thing. Um, I wanted to, to kind of touch on something you said about um colic and uh like digestive or like stomach pain and things like that it almost sounds like you're finding patterns to be able to like potentially predict fibromyalgia is that like fair to fair to oh, say oh definitely yeah really? no it's okay it's okay, it's, yeah. it's 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 uh it what my feeling is that there's a genetic predisposition i'm for example on a simple level i'm genetically prone to diabetes I know that I've known that I'm genetically prone for to heart disease since my early thirties. I'm 50 now. Um, so if you know that ahead of time and I take care of um, sometimes three generations of fibromyalgia patients or on the continuum, like the older, the, the, the adult and grand adult generation have maybe have fibro, but the, the child may have a regional pain syndrome, like a migraine. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's one of these where sometimes that could be taken as, oh, great, I am going to be destined to have this. And it's like, well, no, we can actually, I think, treat and recognize these much earlier. So you don't have to wait with 25 years of struggle to try to figure this out when you're 35 years old. Yeah. I have, um, and, and that's a really cool thing um, when you can help you know, being on the positive side. On a side note, I had somebody who is today I saw whose dad and um, grandpa died of heart disease and they had uh, diabetes at an earlier uh, time in their life, a type two. And I said, well, that sucks, but hey, you're only 45. You can actually keep the train from going off the cliff by making lifestyle changes. Yeah. And it's good to know now, instead of waiting until you're 55 and try to treat but yeah no it's very interesting that's recognizing those patterns i just find that very very interesting and i think part of that training as a pediatrician i get to see being a pediatrician helps me so much better 
with fibromyalgia, taking care of kids who are relate have problems with that. And also it helps me understand adults and vice versa. There's a lot of overlap and fibromyalgia is one that crosses the age spectrum, you know, and it's, it's really cool. As I talked about, I don't know if you got to that part in the book talking about uh, p- uh, pediatrics and fibromyalgia to say is, Hey, your fibro probably didn't start just as an adult. You probably had signs of this going back and uh, the clues were somewhat there. Um, Although not, not everybody, but a lot of times there might've been some, some uh, looking retrospectively at somebody's life to say, Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's strange. Like I, I didn't get a chance to finish the book. Um, I'm actually um, applying to graduate school for dietetics. So I'll probably cool. end up with some fibro patients on my rotations. Um, but there's a, there was a couple of things in there that I kind of wanted to touch on. So when in my upbringing, like just in my childhood, I remember having digestive issues, um, mm-hmm. you know, just, just out of nowhere. Um, I had a colic as a child, you know, it was, it was pretty bad. <laughs> Um, and so like, I've had a lot of these things, um, and then getting into like the mid two thousands, um, I, I think I broke something, my, uh, my radial head or something along those lines. Um, I used to do a bunch of dumb, dumb shit. And so (laughs) I, uh, the doctor had given me some, some opiates and, you know, like a lot of my listeners know the story. Um, and so I ended up going through and being able to like, I can just use doctors as drug dealers, essentially. Um, and it was a very easy thing to do. Um, now coming back and that was years ago. Um, I've since gone to rehab, um, for drugs and alcohol kind of cleaned everything up. And now I've like turned around and help addicts out every now and then. Awesome. <clears throat> um, and so it's, 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 it's a weird thing coming from this side, but now getting into medicine through dietetics and seeing kind of like how, and having this conversation to where like you genuinely had no idea what Oxycontin was. Um, and I don't want this conversation to turn into an Oxycontin conversation. Cause that's, you know, there's a million of those and we could have that conversation 20 times. Um, but coming into where we are now medically, it's almost impossible to get medication like that. But I would be going into the, to my doctor telling them, you know, I can barely walk. If I put keys in my pocket, it felt like I had lightning shooting down my thigh. Um, you know, and it was just, it was out of nowhere um, within a week of this happening. And I was on a clinical trial drug for uh, polycythemia vera at the time. And it just seemed like it was a coincidence. Um, you know, like I thought they went together. The doctors didn't want me to stop the trial. And so now it's, it was almost impossible to try to get any sort of relief until they offered gabapentin, which seems to be everybody, every doctor kind of prescribes that one um, for fibro and then, you know, kind of having to go through everything. But it was a lot more difficult now. And it definitely felt like I would go in, see a doctor, and they would hear pain and instantly be like, well, I don't prescribe pain medication or I don't, you know, do opiates for first-time patients or whatever the case would be. And that wasn't even anything that was like brought up. You know, I had actually tried to make it so I wasn't going to be able to get uh, medications like that and ended up taking about two to three months. Um having to fly out to the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota 
and saw a doctor there from the UK that was over. And he's the one that ended up um, diagnosing me with the centralized uh, pain syndrome. Um, and since then, it's just been doctors are, here's your gabapentin. And if anything else happens, we don't want anything to do with you. I've actually had um, offices cancel appointments with my primary care because they were, it was the same issue or it was a different issue, but they thought it was connected. Um, so as a patient of fibro, it definitely seems like the medical community is severely behind um, on education, on what to do with it, how to, how to treat people. Um, and you're saying that there's this pattern. How is this not more obvious? You know, I mean, it's, you're not the only doctor seeing, you know, these patterns and, and things along those lines, you know, any, any doctor can get a microphone and, and put the stuff out. Why is this not happening? So interestingly, there are some really good researchers. You're in Michigan and there's a Dr. Daniel Claw, who is passionate about this. I, I learned a lot of great science. He's involved with, he's done a lot of research at University of Michigan. And he got me really into understanding this listening to a conferences, uh, re uh, research that he's done and understanding the amplified pain system. So he's gotten it out there, but I, part of getting back into the book, I've kind of thought, well, when is he going to write a book? Mm -hmm. And well, I think is, I don't know if sort the tale of his career and he's done a lot of, uh, re review articles and he's spoken at conferences. And he's done a lot of research. And I think it's like, well, my role is doing research. And I'm not a researcher in the sense of actively doing clinical trials, but I love looking at what research has done and being able to um, cross those lines of different specialties. And that's kind of the neat thing, getting back to why I picked internal medicine and pediatrics. And then I got a board certification in lifestyle medicine a year and a half ago, as well as lipidology has some overlap with cholesterol and heart attack prevention and lifestyle as well, is that because I'm not specialized, that actually makes me better. And I'm also just love to learn. So I get to be a, and in my mind, I get to know about all of the medical problems, but I don't do colonoscopies. I get to know about spine surgery. I'm just not a spine surgeon, but I get to know about who's the best candidates, who are the worst candidates, what are the outcomes, for example, but I don't technically do spine surgery. I can know about Crohn's disease, but I don't prescribe Humira or do colonoscopy for the Crohn's disease, for example. I know about endometriosis, but I don't do the surgery part, but I get to know about all these specialties. But the problem is, is this, when you have a complicated medical problem, which fibromyalgia is, it ends up being sent to specialists. And whatever is the chief complaint of your chronic fibromyalgia pain syndrome. I often say it's like having a classroom of some naughty kids. Well, there's five naughty kids, but one's really loud. And that might be somebody's migraine headaches or might somebody else might have low back pain, but they all, but both of them have migraine headaches. One is louder. So who do you go to first? Well, if you went with, for your back pain, you end up being an orthopedic surgeon or a spine specialist or pain management doctor. If you had migraines as your presenting or chief complaint, you see a neurologist if it's complicated, but the neurologist doesn't really manage the back pain or your chronic leg pain or your IBS 
Or if you go to the GI doctor, you're seeing the specialist who's not responding and they get a colonoscopy or an upper endoscopy and you have some centralized abdominal pain syndrome and they're specialists in that, but they don't talk, to, they're not specialists in the back pain and the migraines and the chronic neck pain and the arm tingling and burning and, or restless leg syndrome or ADHD, for example. So you have all of these, I kind of use the analogy, it's like the blind men and the elephant. Everybody's looking at one different aspect of the whole elephant and nobody's looking at the whole elephant to describe they're all describing one aspect in everybody and the person's a whole you're a whole person you're not just a migraine you're not just a headache but you have diffuse pain and multiple organ systems in your body so i'm able to bridge that um another reason for the delay is this goes back to a mentor or some research Two things. One, it takes about seven years for something commonly accepted in practice to be implemented. And I would say that varies because if there's a strong financial uh, benefit, or I should say, if, it, if somebody can make money off something, that's probably going to get accelerated, you know, uh, expensive oh, yeah. new drug, uh, a fancy new surgery that is profitable, that will get into common practice quicker. Fibromyalgia is actually very time consuming, it's about a lot of education. Um, and then another uh, research said that it takes 17 years for, uh, um, so I'm sorry, every seven years, um, half of what you learn changes. So you have to keep um, learning uh, and keeping up to date with things. That was a mentor told me that years ago, and I thought that was silly. Um, but no, things are changing. We may make the diagnosis, but how we understand all these connections. There wasn't in 2002, there was no understanding that about half of people who have fibromyalgia have ADHD. Well, now we are getting that research. It might take another seven years where it's a routine practice at the Mayo <laughs> Clinic for everybody with fibro to have screening for ADHD. Yeah, That's I, not happening right now. I the actually, 17 years, just the 17 years real quick was it takes 17 years for something that's commonly accepted in practice to be implemented routinely. I, I get those, I got those numbers mixed up. So that's a long time to get something. And that's probably generational because it's almost the next generation of doctors. You, doctors do a certain way of how they treat somebody. They look at you as a patient, that symptom complex, this is just how we treat it. And you have to be willing to learn new things, but I'll let you had a thought there. Oh yeah, no, it was, it's uh Oh, I lost it. No, it was, so we were talking about the ADD, um, how you were saying that that seems to be a constant uh, bridge, you know, that between every patient that you're seeing is. Well, not the, every, but it's, it occurs yeah. more commonly. Yeah. Um, I had actually brought that up to my physician and she said that she was unaware of any correlation between fibromyalgia and ADD. <laughs> um, I'm on ADD medication. Uh, just it's, it's obviously needed if you're around me. Um, but when I brought it up with coral, like, you know, the, the booster dose, uh, we had spoke about and she, she just had no idea how there was any correlation between fibromyalgia, um, let alone the brain fog, you know, like how, like the brain fog and ADD kind of seem like it's both in the brain. How is that not connected? Um, and it's just simply not something that she was even willing to like really say was a thing. Um, and then you talked about how there's kind of like these waves of doctors that are coming in. Um, well, yeah, it's just naturally people, some doctors yeah. are in the middle of their career. Some are going through medical training in med school and going through residency and some are towards the end of their career. 
I hope, and part of this, getting that an early mentor when I was in pre-med who said every seven years, things change. That message never left me. In other words, you need to keep up to date. It isn't like learn this and master it. And probably in any field, things are changing. You know, the technology for a tool and die maker, Mm -hmm. you know, from CNC machines, the computers, the programming, all of that, that has changed technology over time and working in a factory. But you want to have that lifetime learning. And that's what is really cool. That's the neat part of things is those mystery patients now aren't as mysterious. And part of that is, hey, well, there is a connection between these. There's a strong connection uh, between uh, a lot of these. And that's where I didn't know that. Well, I don't know if that was a psychiatrist prescribing or who prescribed that, but well, psychiatrists may be focusing on depression and and, uh, ADHD, for example but they're not dealing with chronic diffuse pain. That's not part of, they, they would compartmentalize it potentially, or they just, if it's for your primary care, they just might not know. And that's part of like, Hey, here, as I share in the, the book and the podcast here, uh, here's information uh, that you can learn and go, that's really interesting. Yeah. And, and wow. And then part of this <laughs> in both the book and the podcast was I, I should do a, this because there isn't a great book out there. And I, and what I did see, as I kind of mentioned before, when we had talked that the Mayo Clinic has a good book, I didn't fully like it. And I thought there were some areas that they could have done better, but when it was written in 2019, there's some studies that were coming out in 2018, showing the connection between the higher incidence of ADHD and subsequent studies with fibromyalgia, they didn't mention the word. And I'm like, boy, I got to make sure that can, that message is communicated. And let's say everybody who has fibro has ADHD, but at least you should be looking at it. And also studies have indicated that there is improvement in fibromyalgia symptoms, significant improvement. And that's one of the pieces of that. If I have somebody who has ADHD and fibro and I do not treat their ADHD, that is a big, that's a big obstacle to overcome. It would have to be heroic levels of pushing through, having a very hands-on active job and a very, very active, uh, workout routine. You know, they'd almost have to be get to the level of a triathlete. And that's just not practical as you get in the real world is if you're going to be working in nutrition, um, eventually I I heard on a podcast engaged or something, eventually have a family, you know, it's not going to be like, honey, I got to work out three hours a day intensely. (laughs) (laughs) And that's just how it is. Cause And that's, I got to get 30,000 steps a day to feel normal. And that's like, that's not practical for most people. Yeah. It's, it's hard like that. And that is genuinely how I am. Um, like right before we got on and when I got home, I did, uh, two hours of Muay Thai and about 30 minutes of sparring. Um, and then I had to go for a run today, plus walk my dog a couple of times. So, I mean, like I have to constantly be doing something it's it's not an option <laughs> it's and it's it's also like i can i can just start talking about a subject and next thing you know i've talked about eight different subjects and the person i'm talking to doesn't know how they're all tied together but in my head they all make sense into one big story so i have to like <laughs> constantly kind of keep track of that so i'm i'm curious how what does it look like 
when you start seeing a patient, um, you know, coming in with like classic symptoms, kind of, what are you, what are you going through and what are you looking for? You know, if, if there's somebody listening that may believe that they have fibro, how do they start about going through the process with you and kind of. Yeah. So I had somebody who reached out, heard my podcast and is going to be traveling a long distance, but I consider a long distance to see me. Mm-hmm. Well, you have some amazing stories and, you know, and you've even just forwarded me some of, so, I mean, to travel. Yeah, to so, so, easy. Um, so I would be neat. I said to somebody, if they can write down their story from the beginning, like if you just said, you know, let's go, start chronologically. Uh, apparently I was a colicky baby. <laughs> I kind of, here's my stand up comedian. Uh, when I share the study that about there's a study in kids that were eight to 12 years old who were having frequent migraines. And they asked the parents, was this, did this child, did you, did, did they have colic when they were a baby? And there was much higher rates of colic in those who were seen in the emergency room for migraines. And my joke is, um, you know, somebody's like, mom, are you sure it's been eight to 12 years? Are you sure I was colicky? And the parents are like, oh yeah. You were definitely colicky. That couldn't be. That's probably my sister you're thinking about or my brother. No, but they would remember. So taking that history, like, well, I guess, you know, being honest, like, yeah, I I guess I was a fussy baby, according to my parents, you know, and that might be part of that story. And I always remember just getting gut aches in my stomach pain. I always had a sensitive stomach. Um, It might be. And I never was a great sleeper, you know, especially if they've read like, well, I've never was a great sleeper. I, I always had I had growing pains as a kid or I had painful periods got headaches when I got into high school, or it might've been also including, I was a four season uh, athlete and I, or I played now it's often two season athletes when they get to middle school and high school. And the two seasons are, well, I play a club sport for six months and I play another club sport for six months that alternate. And so they're year round, often very high level athletes. And they, and there's a lot of, so that history and I was doing great. And, but eventually everybody gets cut. from, you know, and they don't realize that they might've been treating their predisposition to fibromyalgia until they, you know, might be a professional athlete who stops playing their sport and then they struggle afterwards. Or, uh, if they have, uh, just stop playing high school sports and they go to college and they don't realize that they needed to exercise. So that's an interesting, so writing down in a narrative form, chronologically, their history that's really helpful. At least for me, I think that's great. Um, now maybe some doctors are annoyed, but I think that that's for me, what I'd want to know is that there is a backstory. It isn't just what happened now. I want to know what's led up to this, especially with fibro. There's a lot of, of uh, backstory that goes on. And there also is knowing the social history. There's higher rates of PTSD and traumatic life events that somebody went through. Somebody may have been sexually assaulted. Somebody often, if there's uh, fiber runs in families, but so do um, comorbid ADHD. And that means maladaptive behaviors. So there's higher rates of, of a parent who has a substance use, who might've been not the best parent and may have had uh, not the most loving actions. And that also could be in that history uh, at some point or, or in adulthood, they may have been through a, a bad relationship, a very, very abusive relationship into adulthood where that might've been a, a, you know, uh, for a marriage or, or relationship. 
But then when I get them in, I want to I do the simple the WPI, the widespread pain index. That is, where have you had pain in the last week? The symptom severity score, getting a gauge. And that's how we use the diagnosis in addition to a history and a physical exam. And then I do a fibromyalgia impact questionnaire, which is FIQR, the revised form that's used in research. I use that. I consider that like my lipid panel, my hemoglobin A1C for measuring diabetic control is just, I, I need to know where I'm at. Because one of the things I find is many times where people with fibromyalgia go, it, that didn't work. I took that duloxetine, it didn't work. Oh, I tried the diet, didn't work. Or I tried gabapentin, it didn't work. And what you may find is somebody's fibromyalgia impact score, which goes from zero to a hundred. If somebody's got a score of 85, and I can get down to 72 with one intervention, they may still go, I'm in a lot of pain, doc. I'm still tired. But hey, you actually improved some. It went from an eight to a six for this. Or it went from, you know, and then as time goes on, you get to see the progress. I just saw somebody today who April of last year, he had a score of 65, which is in the high level where it was really hard. He was a guy with fibromyalgia and now he's got a score of 20 under 20 is normal he's, and so he has very mild symptoms in, in with comprehensive management of things and part of it started with education he actually was on the internet and found my book and he's like holy cow he actually only lived 30 minutes from where my clinic was so he I was able to see me and we got that baseline he already had the education uh, part of again that from a doctor from my doctor perspective if I, I didn't have enough time to explain this, and this is actually a big take in, I think, and maybe I get your perspective to say you have fibro, here's a two page pamphlet, and then leave my office and good luck. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I, I, I had a two page handout, then a 20 page handout, and I tried to explain everything in the clinic, but there's just so much questions and I, I'd get behind it and try to, <laughs> with patients. So now it's like, hey, I, <laughs> I want you to digest this because this is a lot to take in. I think it's a lot to take. There's a lot of just understanding and education as a patient because the paradigm for fibromyalgia doesn't fit with the classic structural diseases that we are good at in medicine. But I'll pause and get some comments on your thoughts yeah, that you it, have. Yeah, I don't know. That was a, that was a lot. It's... <clears throat> Where do I even start? Well, so I guess the assessment, widespread pain index, symptom mm -hmm. severity score, write out your narrative. I think that's important. And I think it's good to, you can learn a lot from that. And maybe just now, like when you read, hey, that I did have these, some issues before, you know, and that may not yeah, have been yeah, apparent. Yeah. yeah. So I remember like when we first started talking, I believe you sent me that uh, the FIQR. I don't remember exactly what my score was, but I believe it was like right in the middle mm -hmm. um, or something like that. Um it's probably gone down a little bit since then. Um, just I've been able to like Muay Thai is is literally saving my life. It feels like um, yeah. just kind of having that. It's not something I have to push myself because I'm the workout equipment for my partner. You know, so mm -hmm. it's it's this trust thing. Um, so I have to push myself for them, and the same vice versa. Um, so I know that number has gone down, and in talking with you. You've, you've mentioned this a few times about um, that, that score going down. Is it possible to 
permanently reverse it because for me it seems like you were saying you know that two-page pamphlet type thing i didn't even get that from the mayo clinic i pretty much got a a half hour meeting the doctor was amazing you know like if if you've ever been to the mayo clinic or if you've never been it's it's by far the best customer service business i've ever been to Mm -hmm. um top-notch everywhere you go but i left with more questions than i had going in and it didn't seem like i was even able to to ask these questions of you know the mental side of it of just being like no yesterday i could do this now i can't use my hand the way i used to you know like working on my car my hand will my hands just kind of like burn out quicker and it's just like so how do i get back to where i was type thing mm-hmm. and there is no getting back to where there was um how do you as a doctor kind of like go about lessening some of that stress and yeah i don't know it's it's a very frustrating thing i don't even really know if that's like the the right question it's just it's it is a very frustrating thing to be the patient and so to, Oh yeah, go ahead. So one of the first thought is question you had is, well, can you reverse fibromyalgia? Can you push back and can you actually get it to the levels of normal people? And it's interesting. uh, We had kind of met through a Facebook group, but I was on a Facebook group and I posted that the common mentality that I think that patients who've had fibro and and you've made, I don't know any other patient people you've had talk with fibro is it's often treated like a stage four palliative care for cancer that's stage four that really doesn't have great treatments. You're never going to cure it. It's never going to get in. You're, you're just going to try to pacify it. We're never going to get it. And I, I think that uh, it is something that can actually be reversed into levels of the normal range. And everybody's got circumstances that may make it more or less challenging. Somebody's environment where they are locked in a very high stress situation with a spouse or a living circumstance that's very abusive and practical uh, safety of just having a safe home to sleep in a a comfortable bed that they know they won't get, you know, an alcoholic partner coming home. That's, you know, erratic. But so one is that you can, I mentioned on this Facebook that you could, reverse this and and i kind of got discounted who's this doctor saying you can do this he must be selling some kind of uh, supplement or some kind of uh taking advantage of this and i say at, at the end of my book i don't i'm not selling a supplement i'm just giving information so one is explaining how this is a comprehensive approach this is a multifaceted approach i use the analogy in football is to score a touchdown 11 players have to be doing their job and that might just be to get five yards. And now we got to repeat that and get another four yards and then get a first down and we got to methodically go down. And so there's so many different things that have to be going right for somebody with fibromyalgia that people who are neurotypical, if you want to call it, don't have to be thinking about. As Dr. Claus said years ago in a talk, and you can find this on the internet, he says, I don't get chronic pain. He said, whether I play tennis, which I love every day, or I don't play tennis, I still don't have pain. But if you have fibromyalgia and you're not consistently active, you don't feel right. And, and that information is, okay, our brains are different, just like you've observed. Oh, I have had patients in you, and I live in the upper cold Midwest. 
doc, I, I guess I do do better in the summer. Well, on days like we have now where it's so cold, I went for a walk, but I had to bundle up. Well, if you're already have fibro, you're often, most of my patients are much more sensitive to the cold. It hurts. It literally, their body hurts more being out in the cold and they may get bored walking on a treadmill for two hours <laughs> to get the same equivalent, but comes the summer days are longer. It's warmer outside. They can come after work and just go for a walk and be relaxed. And they might just naturally enjoy gardening, going for bike rides, um, being more generally more active. And they go, wow, I feel better. Oh, it's the temperature. It's heat. It's the fact that I'm exercising more. I feel better. There's seasonal effective aspects. So recognizing that is an aspect and that there is some control. There also is that desperation or exacerbation uh, or catastrophizing. A big part of, of fibromyalgia is an alarm system, the brain and the alarm system is hyper aroused. It's hypersensitive and that's for pain, but it all, it's also um, for other things like light, sound, temperature, intestinal sensitivity, but also anxiety is on that alarm system. There's higher rates of ADHD as part of this and part of ADHD is emotional sensitivity. They're much more sensitive, uh, much more caught in these negative loops of negative self-talk that, and that's where treating the ADHD is like, Hey, I can push through this. I can't, I don't get caught in these, uh, negative thinking. I can focus on better on a task and filter out non-essential things, to get my task done. Uh, when we talked to early, when you talked earlier about brain fog, the thought kind of with brain fog is that it takes so much more work for somebody with ADHD to filter out non-essential neurologic input. So I kind of use the analogy of a boy uh, trying to put their fingers in the dike, like in the uh, Netherlands, and they got two fingers and that's okay. That's two things. They got to keep that patched. But now there's all these other holes in the dike and they have to run back and forth, trying to patch all of these holes leaking through the dike to, and there's so much more. I might have two with a neurotypical brain. You might have 15 and you're constantly trying to run back and forth just to keep all of that information from overwhelming, to, from collapsing. When you treat the ADHD, oh, I don't have to work so hard to filter out non-necessary in, in stimuli input. I can just focus on studying for my GRE, uh, focus on uh, editing my podcast especially if it's stuff that people aren't interested in and they go, well, I don't notice the pain as much because I'm focused on something else. So I hope that uh, offers some insight or perspective. <laughs> um, it's weird hearing you describe myself. It, it just, it kind of sounds like you're just kind of like telling people my story. Um, everything, you know, like the trauma, the abuse, the PTSD, the, you know, the, everything it's you know i've done all like gone through all of that and so you're talking about having you know trying to filter these things out i'm trying to uh not think of 48 different things right now and still hold this conversation <laughs> <laughs> and so it's yeah and, and like you can see it there's times to where i literally just blank out and i'm like oh shit what was i gonna you know Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's just gone, you know, and then and when you treat your ADD, you're probably more laser focused on filtering. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm a lot and quieter. Um, and yeah, I can actually stick to like, 
like two or three things instead of like 15 but like it, it's nothing for me even today so this water bottle i uh i filled it up and like kept it inside the sink um so that way like it it's a bigger bottle so it's going through the brita to fill it up i turn around to the freezer to grab the ice tray put the ice in it uh turn the water off put the ice back in the freezer walk away because I forget to grab the water and two minutes later, I have to ask my fiance where my water is. And <laughs> so she knows the bottles and like somewhere in the house, we can't find it and it's in the sink. And so it's little things like that, that will stress me out and make my day so much worse because I do have that uh, negative inner, inner monologue going yes. on in like that constant, you're not good enough loop. You know, like, why yeah. are you even doing this? Yeah. Like, no one wants to listen to this. Why, you know, don't wear that. Why is your hair this way? It's just a constant thing. And then when I can't remember where my keys are, it can just set me off and just be like, you know, it's it's not so much that it's, you know, just the keys, but it could be 15 different things and it's only eight o'clock in the morning and I haven't even left yet. You know, and so it is that constant struggle that it, it's hard being the patient and trying to convey that message to a doctor when traditionally you guys get like, what, maybe 10, 15 minutes per patient. And then you kind of just like pushed on. So it's having this conversation is impossible to do because, A, I would forget half of it um unless i wrote it down and then b most doctors want you know top three things get this one done get this one done if we have time we'll worry about the third and then maybe talk about it later or something so it's yeah it, it's very odd hearing you describe everything that i that i go through um and actually understanding it so it's it's uh so it's, yeah. I, I think i'm glad you that's the, what i i hope that uh people who are listening that term that you have that you talk about that sensitive oh. getting in that negative loop they have a term for that now and i part of a podcast i did uh on rejection sensitive dysphoria it's that emotional aspect of ADHD. And then that bridges into insomnia. So if you if somebody has a booster dose that covers from, uh, say, five o'clock till 10 or 11, when they go to bed, well, now they've completed everything you've, you've edited the podcast, you've studied for the GRE in an hour, instead of staring at it for four hours and got maybe an hour of retention, but you're like, wow, I had solid locked in two hours of study for my grad school. Right. I, I got this edited. I cleaned, I went through emails, whatever you had. I, I did the, I cleaned up the kitchen. I was very organized. I it, it did meal planning. I picked out some healthy plant-based recipes and I made a list so that when I go to the store and I made a schedule. And then when you complete that, well, how is somebody's going to, how's that going to affect their ability to fall asleep? Well, their brain's confident. They aren't hyper aroused. They can fall asleep. They can stay asleep much better because they've completed tests, just like the whole term test anxiety with kids. You don't have a lot of anxiety when you're getting A's on your tests and you know the information, but if you're scrambling and waiting and procrastinating until the night before, well, that causes a lot more anxiety and lack of confidence. And then sure enough, I didn't do great the next day. I couldn't remember where my keys were. 
um, a lot of times when I, I think when people listen to the stories and the way I talk with this and share the stories on the podcast, hopefully people go, that's me. So I'm not the only one. Mm-hmm. So there, this is a common theme. And I think it's so interesting to connect the dots. One of my biggest probably complaints is I get behind. <laughs> and so I try to make sure I schedule time. I had somebody who I said, all right, next time come in for 45 minutes uh, to make sure we cover, cover more. Uh, I don't want to get people behind, but um, medicine does really a good job for very simple problems. When I say simple, you have a urinary tract infection. Here, take this antibiotic. Nobody says, do I really? No, I know, because I have, I have urinary symptoms and it goes away or strep throat or um, treating a heart attack, put a stent in, open the art. You know, you don't have to go and wait and do all this research. People like those quick fixes, replace a hip. But these are these, a lot of education and discussion, but just learning, oh, well, there is a role. Maybe I have that. That makes sense. That my brain fog. And when I do take the ADD med on the weekend, I, I am so much more sharp. And if I did a workout in the evening, I can wear my brain out. But if I got all the studying done, or if I got a booster dose, if I have ADHD, wow, that helps me so much more in the evening, be much more productive. And I do, and actually my pain is less and I sleep better. And then I'm, and then I'm more likely to have um, uh, put some overnight oats in the fridge, chopped up some, uh, uh, strawberries or had some berries ready. So when you woke up in the morning, you had a healthy breakfast ready instead of scrambling for frosted flakes or something, or somebody may be eating on the impulse of some comfort food, grabbing a donut quick on the way to work because they were uh, laying in bed, worrying about life and all of the frustrations and, and, and and their lack of uh, completion on projects that they wanted to complete. Yeah. I think you, you touched on a couple of things that are pretty prevalent that I, it's very hard for me to see people not try to reach their potential. Um, I, I'm not okay with be, people being comfortable around me. Um, if you're comfortable with where you're at in life, there's a big possibility I'm not going to like want to hang out with you anymore just because you don't really have anything interesting to say. You know, like I have a lot of things that I want to accomplish um, I've accomplished a lot of things already, and I, I want to continue to to grow and do those things. And if you know people aren't doing that, it's it's kind of it's not something that I want people to be around me for. <coughs> that it's not the easiest thing for my friends to have to deal with, and, and I'm I'm very very aware of that. Um, and that can be actually a positive thing of in a sense of ADHD. It's that entrepreneurial spirit that trying to come up with goals, problem solving. And that can be a, that can be a good thing. Oh yeah. I have a friend that he'll have me come over and he's a uh, massage therapist. And so he, he runs his own practice and he'll just pick my brain on like random, like ideas. And like, Mm -hmm. I go to fights. Um, I do uh, nutrition for fighters. And so he'll come to the fights with me and want to like, you know, think about logo ideas and business ideas and, Mm Like he's just, he picks my brain. I kind of just feel like a trunk of ideas for this guy. He takes advantage of my ADD. Um, but it's a, it's a good way to dump all that information out of my head. I can sleep a lot better at night when I do that. And you um, feel good about yourself. Yeah. You're yeah, helping exactly. somebody. Yeah. 
um but you do have to put in that work because i know for me to have like an ideal day i get up at six um you know hit the the start button on the the coffee pot and then jump on the treadmill you know get like a good 5k in or something like that stretch um i have it's uh like right behind me it's a uh it's not a it's like a daily meditation book um where it just kind of gives like some sort of like you know forefront thought for the day and Mm -hmm. then i will journal and stretch out for about 10 15 minutes and that's all before you know like eight nine o'clock so then i can get everything ready for my day and actually go on um you know do the whole my day type thing and then at the end of the day i have to have a workout that i have a reputation in our gym for like so we spar every now and then or like we're wearing shin pads and like big boxing gloves and so we're not hurting each other but i want you to hit me if like if you're gonna do it you know like i i want it i want to feel it i want to be so exhausted that when i come home all i can do is just lay on the ground and my brain shuts off and muay thai has given me this thing to where i can almost look at the clock and see it my brain will just stop and it's just done my body shuts down i can't think anymore and it's like this reset for the day and if i don't have that then off to the races and it could take days to get back on track but that's not something that is easily obtainable for everybody um and actually having to take responsibility for your own body and put in the work is also something that doesn't seem like a lot of people are wanting to do they want to come to you get a prescription take a pill and have it be done with it seems like um or have you witnessed uh, so a couple of neat things you just shared to uh, oh. echo was and I, the interview with Dr. Dobson on ADHD talked about there's about 12% of people who have ADHD that can treat their ADHD with high intensity exercise. And for those people, one hour of high intense exercise probably gives about four hours of ADHD, four hours of ADHD. And so that would be when you hit that high intensity level of Mai Tai uh, martial arts training, that does probably help with some of the brain fog for a couple hours afterwards when you come home that you're literally have exhausted you you wore your body out in a good way in a healthy way and you're you've exercised in a good way your brain as part of that in a a very uh, excellent way when it comes to treating fibro it is a combination i I say it's the best of both medication management and lifestyle management so sometimes what happens is and this is where i wanted to bridge both or weave the best of both is that there are people out there who aren't medical doctors and because medical doctors aren't doing a great job you know most of the medication managements as i use the analogy of baseball most of them are singles maybe a double, you know, in Mm -hmm. in America here, we get a home run and we got to go first, second, third, and fourth base to get home. Well, if you only get a single or you only get 20% improvement on gabapentin, you're like, it didn't work. Well, they don't even know they had a 20% improvement because they're still in a lot of pain, but because they never did the function fibromyalgia impact questionnaire score. So they don't even know if they got better or they only got partially better. 
and the doctor is spending 15 minutes and upping doses on medications that may not be appropriate. And that's where uh, non-physician providers in the world, alternative medicine may uh, come in and step out of desperation and try to push supplements that probably aren't offering much. Now I'm all about exercise. I'm all about eating a whole food plant-based diet because those have been shown to help reduce symptoms in a lot of ways. And exercise is part of that stress management. I think just having education is so important to understanding that. And that's part of the drive in both the book and the podcast is, wow, this is a lot to take in, you know, and one of the journaling, when we talk about journaling, I will say at the end of the week, write down your FIQR score. And I'll write, how many steps did you average a day for you're doing high intensity exercise that might not be perfectly measured in martial arts as equivalent steps, obviously, because you're doing a right. lot of more. But for the average person I'm seeing, they're, they're not like, well, that's my tie. That's probably at least 15,000 steps for 45 minutes. You know, that's, that's a hard workout. It only said I did 2000. I did. That's yeah. you gotta, you gotta have a conversion factor for that. <laughs> But for the average person, they're starting at a thousand steps. They 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 may they may be into this for twenty years that they're bare, they just have a hard time just getting around the house. They're in such severe shape, and to tell them to go do high level extras actually may be overdo it. So when it comes to then the, the question you said, are people want potentially a quick pill? But I think people just want to get help, and they want to have okay. a good explanation. And I, for this, for what's going on. And I think if they go, oh, oh, that makes sense. But so, for some people, that is a, this is a paradigm shift that they haven't heard before. I've had people go, I've been, I had a nice compliment from a patient who said, and he's somewhat like you, he's, he was very active, got into some car accidents and it was a, um, a car accident when it's part of uh, racing competitively mm -hmm. in his early twenties. And I think he's in his forties now he's gone through back surgery and spinal stimulators and, and, and many doctors and his doctor retired and said, Hey, you should see Dr. Lenz, you know, just go see him. And he didn't know anything about me. I was able to help him and put things together. And he gave me the biggest compliment. He said, you, did more for me in one visit than all of the doctors combined in the last 20 years. And it was connecting the dots. I, but I did take that long history. I probably spent well over an hour with him, probably an hour and a half or something. When I was able to take the time, I often go over my lunch, but just taking that time. And then we connected having untreated ADHD and RLS, recognizing that, okay, we can treat those. We sleep better. Oh, now there might be a role of a medication. Now you need to get a step counter and pace yourself. Hey, get on a plant-based diet. Oh, I can do that. His neighbor said, what's going on? You took the garbage down that half mile uh, rural road from your house all the way down to the edge of the, the road to take the garbage out. How are you doing? He's like, well, I just got my five miles is finally treated and I can do more. He was, he's just made that impact. So I think people just wanted to, but I think the almost after a while, there's a, I think a term called learned helplessness where I just learned that there's, I'm helpless. There's nothing that can be done. I went to all of these doctors. There's no hope. It's pure desperation. And I think sometimes this message, even I'm trying to share 
uh, of one of of uh, guarded optimism, recognizing this is not a simple, easy, quick fix. Although some people can, depending on their circumstances, uh, get better very quickly. But that this is something that you can get better, which part of then the question is when people get better, there's two kind of reactions. One is, I'm so glad I'm better. But then, well, why didn't my other doctor know this? How come they didn't help me? I, I shared the exact same problems. I talked about this and nobody was able to help me. And I think part of it is, is what they say is knowing the right questions to ask. And like your physician, if they don't even know there's a connection between ADHD and fibromyalgia, well, you won't even think that's even worth checking. And I consider that like the medical detective work, trying to be a, that good detective who's looking at all the clues and knowing how to interview the subject, knowing how to connect the dots and trying to help solve the crime. Um, so that's a few thoughts. Yeah, it's, um, it almost seems like I had to be the detective in my case. I had to be the advocate for myself, which I feel like everybody should take like a, a bigger role in their medical uh, kind of venture at times. Um, but yeah, I had to do the be the detective. I had to use Google and try to figure things out and, you know, like question things. And every other day I was like, oh, well, maybe it's this, you know, maybe, maybe it's that. And uh, going into dietetics, it was, I tried everything, you know, like I was like, all right, well, I'll just do keto and maybe it's carbs and carbs are a huge thing. So I was hoping we could touch on diet really quick before you get sure. you off, but um for me everything started when i was running i was we had just gotten a puppy and he was like eight months old so he just needed to run like 100 miles a day it seemed like <laughs> and uh, so just running in my left leg it just seemed like i had a cramp that would not go away and it just kind of continued um going all the way to where it just seemed like all four of my limbs were in extreme pain going to all these doctors i was offered gabapentin or they she said it was a like a gabapentin trial you know just to see if it would work and i refused it because she didn't have an explanation yeah because to me it was i i was sitting on like the kitchen floor in tears with my fiance next to me and i was like i don't think we should get married I like, I don't know if I'm going to make it through this because I don't know what's going on because it felt like slowly my body was deteriorating and eating itself. It mm -hmm. legitimately felt like the muscle was being electrocuted in like weakening every single day. And it had just got it. It took over my entire thought process to where it's just one of those real moments to where like I could see it in her face to where she was like shit you know like it's serious um and i had to just like once i got back from the mayo clinic and started the gabapentin it was like all right i'm gonna walk you know around the block or i'm gonna walk one the length of the block and then i'm gonna walk around the whole block and i've had to like build up to mm -hmm. where if i stop i i feel like life is an uphill battle and i have to push a boulder 
if I'm not actively doing it and I'm just kind of doing it, the boulder is going to stay still. If I'm not working on it, it's going to go downhill. So I have to go 100 miles an hour pushing this boulder up a hill. Otherwise, it's all going to come tumbling down and trying to parlay that message to any doctor of I don't care what you give me. I'm more interested in the information for the mental aspect. Like you can give me the medication, like that's fine. But I needed to know that there was a reason that there was something that was medically going on with me. Somebody knew what was going on and there was, you know, like there was a reason behind it. And that's what took, you know, forever to find out because you can see a rheumatologist a neurologist um, I saw an oncologist, um, three hospitals, and ended up with the centralized pain syndrome, I, I believe is what they ended up calling it at the Mayo Clinic. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of all over the place. <coughs> um, so a couple of little qu quick thoughts that yeah, yeah. I will have on there. Uh, speaking of the puppy or the dog. And this is a little bit of a little, little humorous here, but what I will say to my patients is, you know, think of fibro like this in, in our neighborhood. Uh, we, we don't have a puppy, you know, our daughter's like, can we have a puppy? But we, we travel too much, do too much. And we didn't want the responsibility. Okay. Yeah. But there's a lot of dogs in our neighborhood. There's one dog. He's a cute dog, nice dog, medium, bigger dog. And he's a dog that just sort of like, he has the, I think if he could think he'd say, I'm just happy looking at people walk by. And if he has to walk around the block, it'd be like, do I have to really walk the whole block? I'm just happy. I'm perfectly happy just watching people. And <laughs> then it there's, oh, it's, I don't know. I, it's a, it's a cute, I don't, I'm not, I have to Google the name. Yeah, okay. of my, my daughter might, I forget, but it's a dog that is just happy and, yeah. and it's fine. And, and it's not complaining. And then there's dogs that probably if you went for a five mile run, they're like, OK, great. So you're going to come back after work and do another five miles. Right. That's yeah. like they need 10 miles to feel normal. Yeah, like, that's my dog. That, and, <laughs> and, and and there's a whole continuum. And if you think of that is like, oh, I need that. I, I had a patient of mine who connected the dots and he said his he would say, you know, in his marriage, he just doesn't like do well sitting down watching TV or Netflix with his wife on the couch. He didn't know he had ADHD and, and with that, some fibro and it was just uncomfortable. And, and he wouldn't want to just go into the garage and work on stuff and do mm. woodworking or I don't know, something. And his wife's like, well, why can't you come in and just sit down and hang out? And I'm like, and he's like, well, well, why can't you come out in the garage and just talk to me while I'm working and doing stuff? Cause I can't sit and just, I, I can't just sit and uh, do nothing. And I think part of that is the education then for the person who doesn't have fibromyalgia, the wife who doesn't have this to go, oh, so when my husband says I need to be active, oh, so it's just like a dog who needs to be walked. Oh, I, I get that analogy. There are just some dogs that that's how they're wired. They need mm -hmm. more exercise. And then you don't look at it as I have to. It's just like, oh, yeah, that's just how I'm wired. And why would you want to sit around and watch boring Netflix anyways? Why don't you go listen to a cool podcast and stimulate your brain for an hour and have that? The other aspect, too, is, is that there has to be education on exercise. So if somebody's getting a thousand steps a day, 
that's their average. What I usually, so for information, I'll, I'll say, keep a journal. How many steps are you getting? And what people will be amazed is they may go from 500 to 5,000 steps in a seven day period. They overdo it on get 5,000 steps, maybe on a Saturday and Sunday, doing a little more fun stuff, pushing it, going to the farmer's market with the fiance, maybe going a little bit farther, walking to the zoo, doing a little bit more. It might've been fun at the time. They might've been stimulated. It was fun, but then they pay for it on Monday and they go, oh, I hurt. I'm so exhausted. And then they only get 500 steps a day for a couple of days and then they recover. That's that roller coaster. Well, that's just information like, oh, I can't do that. I need to get this, take the average. So if somebody's averaging 3000 steps, get that every day and then go and say, okay, next week I'm going to get 3,300 steps a day. That's 10% increase and gradually over time. But a lot of times people never realize that they have to literally be methodical and pace yourself. And if you have ADHD, you're not as organized and you're a little more erratic. So you might have these ups and downs. <laughs> that that you're a little less likely to look at your watch three times a day and say, hey, wait a minute, you're pushing it too much. Dial it back. You, yeah, you're not I, ready. <laughs> and then and then and then you might. And then when you you get up to a summertime and you're getting twenty five thousand steps a day and you feel great. Well, when November hits in Michigan and Wisconsin and you go, oh, it's too cold. It's dark out. It's pitch dark at five. Ah, oh, ah, you know what? Let's just do a loop around the block to your dog and just do your business. I don't want to be walking the cold. It's dark out. I'm, I'm, I don't do well. And then you well, wait a minute. I got to just put on a bunch of layers. And, and there's a store in our local town here. I think it says uh, there's no such thing as underdressed uh, cold weather, just underdressed people. So it might be all right, I got to put a headlamp on. I got to put thermals. I got to put all these layers and I'm got to get my steps and the dog is happy. We're going outside and I just have to walk and people go, wow. Oh yeah. You're really motivated. And you're like, you know, if I don't do this, I don't feel right. And if you know that that's just how you have to be the heart, that's how you have to, uh, that's what you need to feel normal. Then you go, well, that's information. And that, insight into having control because a lot of the, the disease it has to feel like for patients is that it is happening to you you're a passive receiver of this and you have no control over it and i know from your mindset is you've recognized that there are things that do help and you've researched and then talked to and talking again about that advocacy I cannot treat the 10 plus million people with fibromyalgia in the United States. I, I, yeah, I could never right. have the capacity. And part of this is all oh, great. Okay. People are going to want to see me and I, I have only so much capacity. And my hope is that at least a doctor who's just neutral about this would be able to learn and go, that makes sense. And then take some of the bold steps to maybe manage the ADHD, encourage the lifestyle changes look at the, uh, how to pace talking about diet and have that. What I worry is if somebody may get the book, connect a lot of these dots, say that that resonates so much with me, but there is a medical aspect of this. You can't, you know, there's role of diet, there's role of exercise, but if somebody has got ADHD, you know, a lot, a lot of times that has to be treated. You know, it's, it, they don't have a job where they're active. They're sitting at an office all day and they can't get 30,000 steps there. It just isn't possible. And the job is stressful, which makes their fibro worse, for example. So 
that's what I'm hoping is that there's a lot, enough doctors out there of like, oh, I just didn't know. And now I, I want to have that. So hypothetically, uh, you talk to your doctor and say, hey, can I share a podcast with you? This is a nice discussion with one of the nation's leading experts on ADHD. And I think it'd be interesting for you to learn more. Or here's a book. Uh, yeah. Somebody saying, here's here, can I buy this book for you? It's just a gift for me. I think it would be really interesting for you to learn more. I know that most doctors don't know much about it. One other thing I wanted to say is that the two most stigmatized problems I take care of is fibromyalgia and ADHD, because people just think, why can't you just focus? Why can't you just apply yourself? And if your brain isn't, if your brain is neurotypical, you don't understand why somebody can't focus, why they can't just tell their brain to turn off, why they have pain when nothing is physically damaging them. And that's part of that heart that goes out for people who are struggling for my part is that to try to destigmatize this. I think one of the first things you said is that, yeah, it's kind of hard to admit, but I'm hoping people go, I'm not, it's not hard to admit anymore. Actually, I have this and, and, uh, this is how I, I treat it. And, and this is part of the challenges. And this is why you're visiting somebody, your fiance's family at Thanksgiving. And it's after lunch and you're like, Hey, I'm going for a walk. Who's coming with instead of sitting inside, <laughs> yeah. um, inside and just being stressed out, getting no steps. And, uh, one of my patients years ago said, I got to go to the in-laws and it's all this stress, da, 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 da. And I said, well, why don't you walk before you go and get in the car for the two hour ride? You know that you feel better. Oh, and when you're there, why don't you just say, Hey, I'm going outside after this. Anybody want to join me? So you're not coming across as somebody who's trying to just walk away from discussion. And then a lot of people are like, and if they've been feeling better and why, and they're eating better and they go, yeah, I got this thing called fibro and I just track my steps every day. And if I don't get that 10 to 15,000 steps a day, I don't feel good. And, and I realize I got to do that year round. Wow. Well, you look good. Well, yeah, I've been eating a plant-based diet, which might be a good segue in talking about uh, a diet here, but. Yeah. Yeah. That was actually the, one of the last things that I wanted to bring up. I mean, I could bring up about 4 million things. I just, I know I don't want to keep you on here forever. Um, but when bringing up the plant-based diet, so for me as for, so diet for me is, it seems to be the same as fibro is for you to where I, I can't stop thinking about it. If you go through like, uh, you know, like Netflix, Hulu, Amazon prime, like, you know, the list everybody has, everything I watch is documentaries and most of them are food related. Um, you know, going through school for it. Um, I just, I feel like everything starts with what we put in our mouth um and we should kind of like assess what we're eating before we even think about putting in any chemicals like uh, pharmaceuticals and things like that it's it it starts there and so that's kind of where i wanted to take over my care um and i've learned for me um if i eat like I really can't eat that much carbs. And if I do gluten is just a hundred percent out of like anything very heavy and dense. Um, so I'll try to stick to like rice if I do any sort of carbs. Um, but mainly if I could just eat uh, fruit all day, um, some vegetables, and then maybe like a steak or some fish or something like that, uh, just to kind of get like some protein throughout the day. 
um, and then maybe even like a shake or something like that. I'm I'm good. But as soon as I stay up late at night and I start to hate myself, so I might as well just eat the entire bag of Doritos, that's two days negative from just eating all that garbage and sugar is essentially like white pain. It's like a bag of pain. If I eat sugar, it's immediate. My legs are going to start hurting. Is that something that you've seen kind of like across the board? Or am I just crazy? So a couple of things you're uh, to say. Yeah. Uh, we don't think about food as part of even when I say we, the average person doesn't even cross their mind as something that affects their health. I had a patient who I've heard this from many patients. Uh, one today said, well, doc, you know, my blood pressure has always been in the one forties since I was in my twenties and he's been eating the American diet, like 95% of people that his whole life. And his point was, oh, that's just how my body is. And I'm like, well, no, that's just because you've been eating that way your whole life. <laughs> and, and now four blood pressure meds later and 40 years later, you still have high blood pressure and now you need four meds to control it. And I said, but in cultures where they don't eat animal protein and processed carbs or hardly any, their blood pressure naturally is about 106. So similar to the paradigm shift in understanding somebody's symptoms as a comprehensive explanation of the fibromyalgia central pain sensitivity complex, talking to somebody that their food is impacting their health is something that not everybody wants to hear. And I have a passion about educating people about food for other health reasons. I treat other medical problems. I mm -hmm. treat diabetes. I had a person get off just recently going hundred percent plant-based, got off like 70 units of insulin after he had a heart attack. He's he, when he was checking his, he was eating not the best food. Yeah. He was eating frosted flakes for breakfast and he was eating sausages and eggs and all of these not so, great foods. So and really so quick, when, uh, when you talk about the plant-based diet, um, are you, you mean a whole food, yeah. real and not the, so, uh, not the burgers. That so, so just to give a little background, what the average American diet consists of, it's 65% processed carbs, 25% is animal protein and about 10% are plant foods. Half of which is partially processed like ketchup where they add corn syrups and sugar to it. Right. So only 5% of the total calories of the average American diet are actually beans, fruit, vegetables, whole grains, etc. So when you talk about carbs, a lot of times people get confused in the messaging. What is, yes, you get rid of all your processed carbs. One message I want people to think about as a paradigm shift, and it's not talked about, is we do not have the, the biggest dietary deficiency in this country. Do you know what it is? Dietary deficiency? Yes. Nearly uh... almost probably 95% of the Americans are lacking this. And they they don't make fiber. Oh, well, yeah, that was, that was my second. It was vitamin yes. D fiber and then protein. Yeah. So vitamin D isn't in the diet. It's a, it's a, yeah. from the sun, but, but fiber is the biggest deficiency. So a lot of times right now, the message is where do you get your protein? And if you're an athlete and you probably watched the game changers, hopefully yep. you did, if you didn't, um, is 
there's we don't have a protein deficiency in, with in even in athletes as one of the uh, MMA fighters. Uh, I, I got a chance to see the screening of the the game changers. Oh yeah, I did as well. Yeah, and and the the I got the did a Q and A afterwards, and they said there was one of the MMA fighters who eats plant based didn't want to go on camera because he actually considers it a perform, performance enhancing drug because it helps him compete so much more effectively, but he doesn't want all of his competition to uh, eat that way because he performs so much better helps with performance. So when we talk about a whole food plant-based diet, it's not, there's no processed carbs. And then the biggest substitution, what you just mentioned, it would be, okay, instead of the chicken and the fish, have some black beans in your burrito, having lentils, have garbanzo beans, um, any kind of legume, the, the uh, lentils, the uh, beans, that's the biggest substitution. And when it turns out is that actually for like gut problems, there, there is the, the biochemistry behind it is the healthy gut bacteria that thrive on fiber containing foods. And there's all different subspecies of these releases substances. And one of them are precursors to serotonin 90 percent of our serotonin comes from our gut about 50 percent of our dopamine comes from our gut and that's through digestion of our fiber okay and um the digestion of food that contains fiber that the, the bacteria digest also there's these things called short chain fatty acids they are released when people eat fiber and those cause actually i call it like lidocaine in the gut they did a study where they gave people an enema of propionic acid, a short chain fatty acid, one of the fatty acids that's released when uh, healthy bacteria eat uh, have fiber. Those who had um, IBS were, had a, a pressure, a measurable pressure balloon put in the colon. They inflated it and say, tell us when you have moderate amount of abdominal pain. Then they had then given them an enema and then rechecked them and their capacity to tolerate the pain was more. They could handle more pain just by the, doing that. So if you look at also the gut brain axis, when you look at dopamine, how the gut feels, that actually when your gut is feeling better, when you're eating healthy food, your brain feels better. And the opposite happens when you're stressed, your gut, they can send messages to your gut to make your gut feel worse. And that's often that connection between um, things like ADHD and being overwhelmed and that treating that can also help. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's this huge back and forth relationship that goes on. And then if you throw in another variable, well, if you have untreated ADHD, you're more likely to succumb to calorie dense foods in the first place. You're more likely to want to grab those Doritos at night uh, because you don't have a booster dose and maybe you didn't exercise or you're stressed out. So you then impulsively grab those versus feeling calm going to bed and sleeping more comfortably and then eating those healthy choices the next day. And, and a couple studies showed that the fibromyalgia impact score when they went on a, a healthy vegan diet or plant-based diet was cut in half. So, oh, well, I can do that. Now, just like exercise, if you go from 10 grams of fiber to 100 grams of fiber, well, you're going to get a lot more gas and you're going to, oh, I couldn't handle beans. I took a whole can of black beans and I was farting the next day. I had so much gas. I was so bloated that again, obviously you want to gradually go up for many people, especially if they have IBS that's really sensitive and they need to allow their bodies 
to um, grow more and more colonies of these healthy bacteria so they can process them efficiently, kind of like a factory who's getting more raw material. You have to hire more and more workers to um, take care of it. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like I could talk about diet with you for probably five more hours. Um, <laughs> I, I, yeah, it's, I don't know. It, it frustrates me the lack of education that the general population has on nutrition. Um, I'll get, you know, I mean, the biggest question that I get is, can you make me a meal plan, you know, and, and having zero idea what you eat, what's wrong, you know, is this healthy? Um, will this fix my digestion? You know, like all these questions, it's, it's, I'm sure you get all of them whenever you go to family parties and stuff as well. Um, it's just, it's a, it's a subject that I feel like we definitely need more education on. Um, and I'm working towards it. So hopefully yeah. once I pass these RD boards, I will, I'll be able to help out and educate some more people. Um, I do want to put out there that when you say whole food plant-based diet, you don't mean the beyond burger replacement that is essentially just full of oils. Or is yeah, that so I, 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 so, you know, I have a modified handout because some people are sensitive, you know, I, I may come across as pretty aggressive and trying to push a plant-based diet. And I realized that even though I know it would be so helpful for this person, a recent person, had, a patient had to have a heart attack before they finally bought in, you know, and I'm like being paternalistic. I'm like, I don't want you to get to that terrible heart attack before you finally listen and just trust me. But people go, I, I don't want to quit smoking. I like it. And you don't want to have them to have their heart attack. So getting to uh, what I mean by that diet is a healthy whole food plant-based. So preferably I, no oil or minimal oil added. And I getting back to, I try to encourage people. If, so some people will stop listening when I say you need to do this hundred percent and for some people they can get away and tolerate it. There's people who can eat the American diet and they don't get constipated. They don't get IBS. They don't ever feel bloated and they feel fine. Just like they can get by with a thousand steps away and they don't ache all over. But people who have on the fibromyalgia spectrum need to eat healthy to feel better. And so I've switched to as much as you can do to whatever you can, I call it plant predominant, the more, and if you go and there's some people and maybe you're one of them, like I probably am going to have a two, three to six ounce servings of fish a week, but I'm not going to use tartar sauce. And it's going to be surrounded by tons of veggies in a sweet potato without butter or margarine added. And I'm eating a lot more beans and I got rid of my soda and my diet soda, and my chips and my crackers and all the processed carbs. And I backfilled it with lots of fruit, lots of vegetables, lots of this, the potatoes. I, I, a big question, I, people have these confusion in this mixed messages that, well, I can't have fruit because it has sugar. Oh, <laughs> no, fruit's good for you. Yeah. Uh, but don't put the caramel dip on there. Potatoes are great. Well, not the way the most people eat it because you're putting butter and sour cream and bacon bits, but I'll take a sweet potato. I call it the bachelor recipe. You come back from a hard workout. You don't want to do a lot of meal prep. Uh, you have got, you just reheat a formerly baked uh, sweet potato that's already in the fridge. 
it's already been baked, throw it in the microwave, open some black beans and some salsa, and you have a oh, piece yeah. of fruit. And then you go, oh, well, that's actually sounds pretty good. I'm getting my beans. I'm putting salsa. It's got some flavor. It's real quick. And I could eat two of those. And you go, oh, well, I naturally lose weight. My gut feels better. And and so trying to keep it simple, you know, uh, from that standpoint, and I think incorporating uh, beans, lentils, those are the average patient and the person I take care of who hasn't made changes or hasn't had education has beans. And you, if they maybe once a week or less, and usually it's buttered green beans or it's uh, pork and beans with a bunch of sugar and fat added, which is still better than nothing. Like if you have to have cheese on your broccoli, it's better than plain cheese and crackers. You know, it's right, a moving yeah. in the right direction, but yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. No, it, I've, i yeah. I don't even know. My brain is all over the place. Well, one, one thing I just uh, put a shameless plug in, uh, my, for this education, my wife is a dietitian. I don't know if you know that. Oh Um, no, I didn't. Yeah. She's a registered dietitian. Actually. She tries to teach people how to eat a healthy plant-based diet. Her uh, website is bring joy to your kitchen. So if people what what I realize is, uh, I have a license plate that says plant RX. I consider food a prescription. That's amazing. Um, and uh, so, but this is a complicated prescription. You know, there are some things like how to take insulin, you know, or how to take an inhaler. You got to have some education for yeah. some, to learn that. That's relatively simple. Well, well, then there's all these questions that people will, well, well, how would I eat? Well, what do I have for breakfast? Well, I guess you just eat salad all the time, right? You're just eating a bunch of salads when you go plant-based. All you do is eat vegetables and like, <laughs> well, you can't eat potatoes. Those are bad for you. And, and that is actually where there's a lot of coaching that's needed. So she actually does uh, these yeah. six, eight week classes. Uh, she is in the middle of one now that actually helps people. And I think people do need to do that. Just like if I've had patients who never really exercise in a training way, they've never, they don't feel comfortable going to a gym and just turning on a treadmill or an elliptical. It's just, yeah they don't even, they, they would feel self-conscious as a dude going in, like I should know how to operate this and don't want to ask somebody how to work the machine. Well, Hey, get a trainer and have them put on a program. Where are you at now? I was talking to a patient who said there was a overweight gentleman who very overweight, went to a high intensity workout class and was working out in the class and he ended up leaving the room and, and nurses went out and checked on him an aerobics class and he was having a heart attack. That's, and that's one of these who probably wanted to go all in, lose all the COVID weight in, in the first 60 minutes of a workout. And it's like that exercise prescription is just go for a walk. Can you walk for 20 minutes? One of my friends uh, ran a marathon, his own, you know, marathon, but he was used to be very sedentary when I knew him in med school A great guy, but he said, all right, I want to try to get in, be healthy and exercise. He said, I'm going to set a goal. I know I can reach. And he knew he could walk every day for 20 minutes. And then he did 25 minutes and then he did 30 minutes. And then he'd walk a little and jog a little for 30 minutes. And he was next thing, you know, he's jogging the whole 30 minutes. And then he'd push that farther and farther and training, but it started with an achievable goal. And, but having somebody teach you that, how, what do I eat? and having a class to teach you how to do that. There's a lot to that because people just have never eaten this way. They don't know what to eat and all the meal planning 
there's a lot that goes into it and to have fun with it. Just like somebody can go to the gym and go, I just got bored. You're like, well, if you have a good trainer, there, making it interesting or, uh, or finding something that find exercise. I hate the word exercise. Just say, have fun, play yeah. uh, for you. You, you, you don't call it exercise. Your martial arts. I know you like, it's fun. I look forward. That's a chance yeah. for me to play. <laughs> yeah. It's that's, that's one of my mental struggles with Muay Thai is, you know, taking instruction and not being so serious and actually just letting myself be a kid and act like a ninja, you know, like it's, <laughs> it's fun to do. I mean, like I literally will just wear like cartoon t-shirts and like, I like pink Muay Thai sh shorts or, you know, like it's just whatever you want to do. You just be a kid, just play. It's, it's my thing. It's, it's the thing that keeps me grounded and, and make sure that the next day, is a better day so i'm definitely going to keep going um but i know i've i promised you i'd get you out of here in an hour and a half or so so i definitely think we're gonna have to talk again i'm gonna have to to finish this book maybe have to do a part two and kind of dive into <laughs> some things a little bit more um but how can people get a hold of you reach you where can they find the book <laughs> And then yeah. also, um, as your wife being a dietitian, it's not a shameless plug. Like that's great information that people can definitely use. So if you could kind of, if she's open to uh, to people going on her website or maybe signing yes. up for her class. So, well. so the uh, her website is bring bring joy to your kitchen. Uh, her name is Joy, but kind of a fun play on words. Bring okay. joy to yeah. your kitchen .com. And she's really fun. She, she's more fun than me. And, uh, and then the website the, you can get the book called conquering your fibromyalgia is available on Amazon. I have a, uh, uh, landing, uh, book page, uh, website with some blogs that I are, that I've done on fibromyalgia. Uh, and the podcast is called conquering your fibromyalgia. There's when you, when I started the podcast in August of last year, I didn't know where it was going to go. And, uh, I'm really just fun. It's been fun to yeah. help people who the topics just kind of expand. And I think sharing stories, I think people like hearing stories and having some positive stories. And that's part of that is, Hey, there is hope, not some wishful hope. If you look, listen to Teresa's story, it was a year and a half and there's stuff like, and then finally a year later, I got that activity monitor and, and I ate plant-based and I gradually increased my exercise. Those were things that she had to buy in. If you look at one of the earlier chapters in the book, it's called the buy-in. You actually yeah. have to buy in that you don't have some rare disease. Cause I see this happen often with fibro is that people are convinced because they've done a Google search, which, Hey, Google, you can find some good information, but they'll say, Oh, this is this rare disease. I got Lyme disease. It's, I got to see a Lyme literate doctor and because the regular doctors didn't make the right diagnosis and there's, I wanted to get good information out there. And with, with, uh, sharing stories of people also getting better and also the evidence is evidence based approach is not just Dr. Lenz coming up with some ideas. These are this, the, the research is out there showing this It's just bridging all of those different specialties, what we know in IBS specialty, the GI specialties, bridging all those topics together. So you can get the book, like I say, on Amazon, and you can go to the website, Conquering Your Fibromyalgia. 
and you can make an appointment with me. <laughs> I cautiously say that because I'm busy and I, uh, but I also want to help people yeah, and definitely. you, you can, uh, make an appointment. If you want, you can connect through that, uh, make an appointment through conquering your fibromyalgia website. I work in Wisconsin in a Western sub, uh, suburb of Milwaukee. So people who are in that area, but I say, I, I'm kind of cautious because I don't want to have people try to get in and they're like, Oh, I couldn't get in, but I, I have a passion just helping people because yeah. this is probably maybe a, a note is that as much as you feel that you're not getting help or listened to or discounted, probably the most rewarding pro medical problem I take care of is fibromyalgia and related problems. Because when somebody has been struggling for so long, and this is sometimes decades, to have them get better is so rewarding. I, as I say in podcasts, nobody comes in and says, I've been to 10 different doctors and you're the first one to diagnose my strep throat or their urinary tract infection. You know, those are easy. Those are simple things to treat. But when somebody who's been struggling, like I said, a patient who said, I've been, I've been, you've, you've helped me in one visit in a, in a couple of subsequent visits, more than all of the doctors I've seen for 20 years prior to this. And that's, that's pretty cool. Again, the sad part is, well, why didn't I, why didn't my other doctor know about this? <laughs> and yeah. they get, and, they, and I just say, well, we can't go back in time. I I'm doing a podcast that I'm researching for about the author of the book gone with the wind. And she clearly had fibromyalgia and ADHD. And she, I'm just was uh, taking some notes when she went through fibro, a deep fibro combination of ADHD type symptoms in early twenties, she called it a black depression. It was just probably where you were oh, yeah. when you were on the ground, wondering if you could, if we're ever going to get married, that deep hole of despair. And, and when you, when I, when you hear her story, you're like, wow she was successful, but she struggled. And one of the only ways she got any relief was when she went on her creative side and was able to try to create her story uh, the, and write the book, got her mind off her pain. But it's just, my heart goes out. I wish I could go in a time machine and sit down when she was 21. And all of the doctors she saw back then, they basically said, kind of you're stressed or you got to relax. It's sort of in your head or they did crazy stuff and said, maybe you have infected teeth. Let's yank all of your teeth and see if that works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, that's, so that's a cool podcast series in itself, just walking through and hearing her story. So anyways, it was awesome to chat with you. And, and, uh, and I'd love to hear more about, uh, talk more uh, in the future. If you get a chance and good luck on your registered dietetic boards, I hope you do very well. Yeah, well, thank you very much for that, and uh, definitely be looking out for for that for that podcast series. It sounds it sounds pretty interesting, especially knowing you and knowing how deep you're going to dive into this. I can only imagine um, the the things you're going to find and be able to publish on it. Um, if you ever need somebody to come on and give like a little bit of comic input on something, just let me know. <laughs> well, yeah, that's that part. Well. Yeah, I think hearing uh, somebody's story of what they've gone through, I think part of that is that you're not alone. 
I, I often will say to my, some patients, I'll, I'll say, you know, you're not that special. And of course, that's my sense of humor. Now, yeah. knowing me, do you think I really mean that somebody is not special? But what's the real meaning behind that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're just saying that. that, like, that there's five I've seen this before. Yeah, yeah exactly. you're not the only one. Really? I mean, yeah. I'm a dude. I got fibro. Like, there's other dudes like me and who had black depression and were down. Yeah, this was going on 100 years ago. Yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. And people were blown off 100 years ago and had all these didn't yeah. get, didn't get great help and they didn't even have the internet to learn things out. And the, and the, and the sad part is what did they do back then? They were in a lot of despair and they didn't have the answers. So now we just try to get the message out. And I hope that this message can be shared by anybody who's listening, who knows somebody who would benefit from learning more about this, who just wants to get good information and hopefully they can share that again, for people who have fibro, for their loved ones who just don't understand this. And then also for doctors, like, hey, think about listening to this when you go for a walk with your dog or you're folding laundry and hopefully understand things. And I think that the dots will start to be, will start to click, hopefully, as more and more people get a, gain, a, gain a greater understanding of fibromyalgia and related problems. Nice. Yeah. Well, I know as soon as I finish this copy, I plan on giving it to my primary at U of M because um, I am a patient at U of M. So I'm, I'm going to rewind this and remember that doctor's name. And I'm probably going <laughs> to end up looking him up and seeing if I can't get an appointment with him. But uh, yeah, other than that, um, I, I've really appreciated this entire this entire conversation. Um, I'm almost betting we're going to have another one in the future. Um, and yeah, I will, uh, I will let you go about your day. I know you probably got an early morning tomorrow, so I cannot thank you enough for coming on, uh, Dr. Michael Lentz, everybody. Thank you very much. Yep. All right. Thanks. See, told you it's a lot of information. Um, it's amazing that there's actually a doctor out there that's trying to help and he's not trying to just rip you off um he's a good dude that was the best part about it is he was genuinely a good guy i, I uh i was worried that it was going to be something different no you know it was exactly what he said it was going to be um, it was just an honest conversation i would have liked to have dove more into uh to other questions that i have but i think i'm just gonna save that for another episode I, I i genuinely feel like we're gonna have another talk so if you have any questions that you would like for me to ask him please shoot me a dm um you can find me at a fighter story uh everywhere um that's where you can find me we've also started a patreon so patreon slash a fighter story uh the podcast is really taken off i know right now this episode is not what you expected um, it doesn't go in line with everything, um, but this is my show, and uh, it interests me, and it affects me, and hopefully I brought some sort of entertainment to your day, and did bring some value to you. Um, we do have a couple 
um, subscribers that do help with the podcast. And I would like to spend or send, sorry, a special thanks out to you guys uh, who do help support the podcast. That is amazing. It is keeping things going. Um, I promise you everything that comes in goes directly back into it, whether it be more technology, trying to figure out this microphone and whether or not it gets replaced with something different. Um, This is all meant for fun uh, for me, for you, for the community, and just to have a voice. I feel like myself and everybody I encompass, we can all have a voice. We can make something cool together. You know, small strides become a mile eventually. You just got to keep going. So with that uh, random nonsense, I'm going to let you guys enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. I genuinely appreciate everybody for listening. And I love you. See ya.